Romans 12, this is where we have been now for over six months is in the book of Romans. We have been uh, making our way this, through this book slowly but surely, and so we're excited to continue today in Romans 12. Something that I've realized over the years is that one of the most frequent conversations that I have as a pastor with Christians outside of my church is about why they are dissatisfied with and potentially leaving their church. It's one of the most frequent conversations that I have with Christians outside of our church. Um, And it's actually somewhat rare that I have a conversation with somebody who is genuinely excited and enthusiastic about what's going on in their church. It's it's somewhat rare. Most people just kind of go to church and it's fine. I like it. I know people there. I have friends there. But it's so rare that I meet somebody that goes, man, let me tell you what the Lord's doing. Let me tell you what the Lord's showing me. Let, me. let me tell you about what's been happening in our midst. And I think some of that has to do with the sort of consumeristic churched culture that we live in, particularly here in the Bible Belt. I think it breeds dissatisfaction. A culture where there are many churches and many people you know either go to church regularly or have some level of connection to the church. And because of that, it can seem as if the grass is always greener, right? Your friend's church does this or that or has such and such ministry or event. I can't tell you how many times in years past I've actually had people come to me bothered and or even angry because their friend's church was doing something that our church was not doing. And why in the world are we not doing that? Don't, like, don't we want to be successful? Don't we want to be healthy? Don't we want to be like them? When I was a pastor in Plano, Texas, like 15 years ago, our large church of 2,000-plus people was less than a mile away from Prestonwood Baptist Church. I don't know if you're familiar with Prestonwood, but Prestonwood is like 15,000-plus people. So our, what I think of as a huge church, was next to this like enormo church, right? And it was so big, it was almost like a mall. I don't know if any of y'all have been there. In fact, we would sometimes go eat lunch there because they had basically a food court, and, and like you could go eat lunch there, and it was really, really good. And they just had all of this stuff. And they had this thriving private school. Many of the kids in the area went to the school there. They had a workout facility. They had intramural fields. They had a bookstore. They had all this stuff. And, and we were also a few miles away from Stonebriar Church, which was this big church um, maybe five miles down the road. And they had a celebrity pastor, Chuck Swindoll. Um, who is really well-known, or at least he, he was at one point, had a radio program, has written dozens of books over the years. And so this is this, is this weird megachurch vortex that we were in when we were in Plano. And so the result of that was there was this constant stream of consumers, constant stream of consumption in and out of the church. It would be, well, our kids go to school at Prestonwood, so we're going to leave and we're going to go to church over there. Or, you know, we really like the preaching at this church a lot better than the preaching at this church, so then we're going to go over there. And, and so it was like, man, what are, um, what are the religious goods and services that I most want? And let me shop around and find those. Humorously, we were the small church. People would come to us from a church of 15,000 people, come to a church of 2,000 people and go, oh, it feels so intimate here. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. Most people I've encountered over the years 
approach the church with this question, the question I just asked, which is, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for me? And they're really asking that question of the church organization and its leadership rather than like the people who are sitting around them in the seats. What are the religious goods and services you offer? How good is your music, your preaching, your kids' ministry, your youth ministry? How are you going to serve me and my family? How are you going to meet our needs? I think if we're honest, that's how many of us have been conditioned to approach the church. And it makes sense. That's how we live the rest of our life. Right? Am I going to go to Walmart or am I going to go to Target? Well, let me, let me weigh those options. What is it that I want? What's the pricing? How clean is the store? Right? How much do I enjoy shopping there? Like, do I have a good experience? Like, that's going to determine what I do as a consumer. And so we approach our entire life in that way. So it, it, it should be no surprise that when we come to the church, we bring the same paradigm. We bring the same mindset. But recognize this, guys. Everything that I'm describing to you would have been completely foreign to the Apostle Paul. Everything that I'm describing would have been completely foreign to Paul. In, in the Roman letter that we're looking at today, he's writing to Christian believers in Rome. He's writing to, quote-unquote, the church in Rome. But recognize he's writing to a somewhat small group of believers in a huge city. Like, Rome was not a city by any stretch of the imagination, at this point in time at least, where there was a church on every corner. Now you go to Rome, and there's a church on every corner. But at this point in time, nothing could have been farther from the church, from the truth. So people couldn't, like, shop around for a church. People couldn't approach the church as a consumer. Christians were persecuted. Also, this Christian faith was, it wasn't culturally acceptable by any stretch of the imagination. So there was a very real sense in, in which you guys need each other. Like the church needs to be together. The church needs to live life together. But the biggest takeaway from Paul's writing is this for me. We must approach the church asking not, what are you going to do for me? Instead, we have to approach the church asking, what can I do for the church? And when Paul talks about the church, he is primarily talking about people. He's not primarily talking about institutions. Read with me this morning. Would you all stand with me? Romans 12 Paul says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Today, in light of everything we've seen in Romans up to this point, Paul says, now, guys, here's how you should live. Right? So Paul spent the first 11 chapters of Romans unpacking our situation. Like we were hopelessly, desperately lost in our sin. We were dead in our trespasses. But God, in his incredible mercy and grace, sent his son, Jesus, who has now died and risen from the dead so that we might become co-heirs with him, so that we might become children of God. So Paul has unpacked for us this incredible gospel message all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 10, and I mean, and, and I'm just skimming the surface there. I mean, there is so much depth in those first 11 chapters of Romans. But now we get to chapter 12, and there's a turn. He says, okay, based on everything that I've shown you, based on everything that I've told you about the way that God wants to justify you, the way he wants to sanctify you, now here's how we live. And he sort of divided this into two parts in chapter 12. Today, we're really only going to focus on this first paragraph. Next week, we're going to focus in on the second paragraph. The first paragraph here is all about how we, as followers of Jesus Christ, relate to each other. Here's how we should live amongst the church. And then next week, we'll talk about how we live as the church amongst the rest of the world. He begins by saying, let love be genuine. I think this whole verse 9 is like a thesis statement for this whole section. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. We should approach the church, and again, we're talking about each other here, the body of Christ. We approach the church with genuine love. Love that isn't a facade Love that isn't a show or an act, but love that is true, seeking whatever is good. Seeking whatever is good, not just for me, but for the whole. And being especially vigilant to silence whatever is evil within us. Being vigilant to like look inside of ourselves and to see the ways in which we are tempted. To see the ways in which we may be starting to move off the path. One of the reasons why we pray a prayer of confession every week, it, that may be new to you, I don't know, that may not be something you do um, in churches that you've been to before. One of the reasons why we do that every week is, one, because the Scriptures call us to confess our sins to the Lord. Scriptures actually call us to confess our sins to one another as well, particularly if we have wronged another person, that we would confess that and seek forgiveness. One of the reasons why we pray a prayer of confession every week is because we need to be made aware. We need to look inside. We need to ask the Lord to reveal to us any error within us, any way that we might be deviating from the path so that we can correct through his grace and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul lays all of this out for us. And notice virtually everything he says here is about what you can do for the church. He doesn't say, you guys need to find a church where you can get all of these things. He says, you need to do this. His Christian readers, both Jews and Gentiles, this is how we live with each other. And so he says things like you need to love one another with brotherly affection. Like you need to treat this spiritual family like it's your biological family. You need to care for them in that kind of way. You need to outdo one another in showing honor. It needs to be like a contest. Like, like we need to be seeking each other's good over and above our own good. And by the way, I think one of the things you will notice in this is Paul's not, he's not coming up with this off the top of his head. He's simply looking to Christ and saying, who is Christ? What has he done? What is his example? And then how do we put that into practice in our lives? So what has Jesus done? Well, he has loved us with an unending love. Jesus has shown us honor by dying for us, by washing our sins clean, by inviting us into the kingdom of God to be co-heirs with him, to be children of God, even though we don't deserve that at all, even though we've done nothing to earn that. Paul says, don't be slothful in zeal. Don't become lazy. Don't become like just content to sit and do nothing. But instead, like be passionate about the gospel and about the mission of Christ, the things that he has sent us as his body to do. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. How many of us wake up every day and think, God, how have you called me to serve you today? No, if we're being real, most of us wake up and go, how am I going to serve myself today? For many of us, our primary idol, the thing we wrestle with the most is our own list of wants and wishes and desires and demands and preferences. Notice how Paul's calling us to put ourselves way down the list. Like, we're going to seek to serve each other before I'm going to seek to serve me. But, but above and beyond that, man, we're, we're here to serve the Lord. And based on what we read earlier in the Gospels, based on that great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, those things are not mutually exclusive, man. They are wrapped up in each other. Like, I don't think it's possible for you to actually love God and not love your neighbor. It's not like I can do one and not the other. Like, these things are all a unit. They all go together. And if you want to love God, then we have to love our neighbor. We have to love the things he's created. We have to love the people that he has sent us to love. So we serve him. We rejoice in hope, even when there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope in our world. Even when things seem to be chaotic and tumultuous, the gospel awakens our hearts to the fact that we have hope. Praise the Lord, we have hope. Like we don't have anything to worry about. For those of us who are in Christ, like Jesus has like sealed and secured our childhood in God. The fact that we will be his children, that we will dine at his heavenly table eternally. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has sealed that. It's not a maybe. It's not a possibly. It's not even as long as I'm a good boy. 
No, it's because of him and what he has done. And so we rejoice because outside of the gospel, we have no hope. Outside of the gospel, we look at our world and go, man, like, like why do I even hang around here? And, and you see like the epidemic of suicide that's just sweeping over our nation and everybody's like pointing to all of these different things, which I think are catalyst things like social media. And, and I mean, we see people left and right in the military who are ending their lives. Um, I work with a military organization that I helped start here in Bozier. Man, and just all the time we are responding to families who have been touched by suicide. At the end of the day, though, it all comes down to a lack of hope. And then notice he also says we have to be patient in tribulation. We have to be patient in the midst of hard seasons, chaotic seasons, seasons where things are not going the way that I want them to go. We live in a world today that tells you that the most important thing, like the, the critical element for you, is that you be happy. And it's great to be happy. I think, though, the picture that Jesus paints for us is a picture that says, listen, guys, if you want to follow me, then you are signing up for something hard. You are signing up for something that will be not just challenging, but will be challenging beyond anything you could bear outside of me. Jesus told his disciples Guys, I'm going to send you a helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus knew, even though he had been with them, even though he had trained them, even though he had communicated the truth of who he was to them, even though they had seen him resurrected, like without the Holy Spirit, you will not be effective. Without the Spirit, you can't do what I've sent you to do. So we have to be patient in the midst of tribulation. We have to be constant in prayer. If God is real... If he is the creator of all things, if he's given us this incredible privilege of being able to commune and communicate with him, why would we ever not do that? So he goes through all of these things and he says, this is how you relate to each other. This is how you live with each other, church. This isn't how you find a church. This isn't how you uh, judge whether or not your church leaders are worthy. No, no, no. This is what you bring to the table. This is what you are seeking to offer to the body that you are a part of, contributing to the needs of the saints, seeking to show hospitality. When the Bible talks about hospitality, it's talking about the love of stranger, loving people who you don't know, and, and in the context of the New Testament church, by and large, I believe it's talking about people opening their homes to strangers, to get real specific. Eugene Peterson kind of sums up this passage in this way. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master. Cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. 
Help needy Christians be inventive in hospitality. Here's my theory. The primary reason, so I think, primary reason why people either join or leave churches is mostly relational. I don't think it's primarily theological. I don't think it's primarily doctrinal. I don't think it's just because, oh, I like that preaching or I like that music. I think those are all part of kind of this equation. But I think the primary part of the equation is relational. It's a question of, do I like these people? Do I want to be with these people? Or do I not want to be with these people? But if your experience of church was like what I just described, like if you experienced a church where all of these things were happening, why would you ever leave? Why would you ever leave? But recognize that Paul's command, as we've said, is not for you to like find that place, to like shop around for that place. What Paul's saying here. And what he's calling his readers to is that you are to be the ones who initiate that environment. You are to be the ones who create that environment. We are to be the ones who create that environment. That's not up to a singular leader. That's not up to a committee. That's not up to a small group. It's the responsibility of the whole body to be the body of Christ, to, to, to come to the table and seek to actualize these things based on the example of Christ himself, that together we would look to Jesus and say, what is Jesus like? Who is Jesus? What did he do? What did he show us? And now how do we put those things into practice as we live live together? But this isn't really like how our culture thinks today. Like if you, perceive, if you perceive that your needs aren't being met, then our culture sees that as a perfectly valid reason for you to move on. If I'm not getting what I want, then our culture says that's a perfectly valid reason for me to move on. And, and, and an example of this is just look at, at how cool we've gotten with divorce. Like there was a point in time in history where, where divorce was pretty rare, and, and even when it did happen, it was kind of hush-hush. Like, people didn't really talk about it. Guys, it has become so culturally acceptable. And I, and I don't mean, like, divorce in cases of adultery or, like, even abuse. I mean divorce just because of convenience and preference. I don't like this. This doesn't meet my needs anymore. This isn't what I want to do anymore. By and large, our culture has said, well, yeah, fine. The most important thing is that your needs be met. The most important thing is that you get what you want. If it's not what you want, then by all means move on. But, but Paul is assuming that his Roman reader's experience of the church is going to be difficult and fraught. That it's going to be tenuous. For one, the church was much more of a melting pot than we are, right? I mean, the church in America today is incredibly homogenous. Like, you go to any church, by and large, and you're going to find a group of people who all basically look like each other and who are all basically in the same socioeconomic bracket. That's just the way the church in America is today. That was not at all the context in Rome. Rome is this smashing together of cultures. 
right? Not only do you have people from different lands, but literally within the church, you have the Jewish religious culture butting up against the irreligion and paganism of the Gentile culture. And all of these people are coming together under the banner of Jesus and trying to live life together as persecuted people, Right? Where we need each other, but we don't really understand each other, and, and we may not even really like each other all that much, or we may not really want to spend time together, but we are here, and Jesus and his sacrifice is what constitutes this. It isn't just our desire to be here. It isn't just that we want to be with each other. It's because of Christ that we are together. So this is the context that Paul is writing into. The rich and the poor are thrust together. Many of them are at odds with their biological families and their friends because they think they've gone off the rails by following Christ. Now, Paul's writing to them going, guys, this is going to be hard. This is going to be challenging. And if you don't love each other, if you don't forgive each other, if you don't care for each other, if you don't pray for each other, if you don't provide for each other, it will never work. It will never work. And here's the thing. We live in a world today that is very different from that of first century Rome, and yet I don't really think all that much has changed. If the church is going to thrive, none of us can approach it as a consumer. You have to approach it as a producer. Not what can I get, but what can I give? Not how can I get what I want, but how can I actually set myself aside and seek the good of others? A couple thoughts. The church is where you learn what love truly is. Through the word of God, as we come together, we don't just hear it, through the scriptures, but the church is where we actually start to put those things into practice. I don't just mean like romantic or sentimental or affection-based love, but I'm talking about the love of Christ, the love that he has demonstrated to us. And, and like the primary characteristic of Jesus's love is that it is self-sacrificing. It's self-sacrificing. The love of Christ teaches us that love is not just something we show to others because we, uh, we think they're going to reciprocate it or we hope they're going to reciprocate it back to us. Paul writes later in Ephesians 5, he writes, Husbands, love your wives. And he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus has sacrificed himself so that all of this could be true of you and me. It wasn't for his good, it was for our good. In other words, Jesus' great love for us is that even though we were unlovable and did not love him back, he sacrificed himself so that we might be changed. He didn't just sacrifice himself so that we can go to heaven, by the way. He sacrificed himself so that we might be sanctified and so that we might become his bride. 
Theologian Karen Pryor says that the Bible, like all great stories, ends with a wedding. That's true. In the consummation of God's kingdom, we come together with Christ in this way that Paul has described for us, where we become co-heirs and children, but not just that, we become his bride as the church. That this marriage can't happen outside of the self-sacrificing, forgiving, atoning love of Christ. It is the catalyst for that. It's that kind of love that we not only learn within the church, it's that kind of love that we are called to give to the church, to each other. It's a love that says, I love you even if you don't love me. I love you even if you annoy me. I love you even if you said something that hurt me. I love you if, even if it's clear you don't like me at all. Because that is the gospel. Like, that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Even when our backs were turned to him. Even when we were disobedient beyond belief. Even when we wanted nothing to do with him. As Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And secondly, the church is our training ground for taking the love of Christ to the world. Like when we practice that kind of love in community with one another, we become equipped to then go in the way that Christ has sent us. If we refuse to genuinely love people who know Jesus, then how in the world are we going to love people who don't know Jesus? We've been given this mission to be disciples who go and make disciples of all nations. And as we say often, a disciple is somebody who is seeking to emulate the way of Jesus. Seeking to become more like Jesus. We are sent just as Christ was sent. But Jesus didn't come begrudgingly. Jesus didn't say, maybe I'll do that. No, his coming was based on God's love for the whole world. So it is because of that love that we are sent out and the church is sort of the place where we live it and experience it and practice it so that we might go and scatter and take that same kind of love in word and in deed to wherever we, whatever space we inhabit, our context, our workplace, our schools, our neighborhood, our homes. Here's what I'm going to leave you with today. Three ways that you can embrace loving the church well. First of all, be quick to resolve conflict. The problem with the church today is not that there is conflict. The problem with the church today is that conflict goes unaddressed and unresolved. Ninety-nine percent of people I talk to who are leaving a church, they may give some uber-spiritual reason on the surface, but when you really start to dig down, what it will ultimately come back to almost all of the time is a relational conflict with another person. It might be with a leader. It might be with just some other random person in the church. And rather than addressing the conflict, rather than actually seeing restoration happen, it's just easier to leave. It's easier to walk away. Now, here's the deal. In Matthew 18... Jesus just assumes there's going to be conflict. He assumes there's going to be conflict. So the presence of conflict 
is not that there's anything wrong. Like, we're all sinners coming together under the banner of Christ. Of course there's going to be conflict. So Jesus gives us a plan in the Gospels for actually addressing that. The problem is, is we don't do it. And so we, we sit back. We don't say anything. Maybe we get a little passive. We let it fester. And then eventually it comes to the point where it either blows up or we peace out. Be quick to resolve conflict. And be careful to do it in the way that Jesus counsels us to do it. You can read that Matthew 18. Jesus walks us through a strategy for addressing conflict with other people. And it's, it's, it's not rocket science, guys. It's, if you have a problem with somebody, go and talk to them about the problem. Here's the, here's the real issue. All that stuff we were talking about, about loving other people ahead of us and, and all that, all of that is dependent on us being humble. The problem is, is when we get hurt by somebody else, our pride says, I don't even want to let that person know that they've hurt me. And it is our pride that prevents the church from becoming healthier and healthier and actually emulating the way of Jesus that we've described. Be quick to resolve conflict. Secondly, don't wait for the church to earn your generosity. Notice what he said in today's text, that, that we are to be generous. And he, he's not talking about necessarily like putting your money in an offering plate, even though the early church was basically doing that. They were giving their resources to a common storehouse so that nobody uh, had any need. But being generous in the way that the New Testament talks about generosity has nothing to do with kind of our modern concept of investment. So when we think about an investment... We think about kind of researching and judging. Like if you're going to play in the stock market, like you're not going to do that haphazardly. You're going to do some research. You're going to read up. You're going to look at what other people are doing. You're going to maybe talk to an advisor, and then you're going to invest your money. And you do all that work on the front end because your hope is that you're going to see a positive return on the other side of it. That's not the paradigm that we're applying to giving within the context of the church. The paradigm that we're applying to this is the paradigm of being self-sacrificial. And so it's the idea that I'm just going to be generous and I'm not giving because something has earned my giving or because I've judged or deemed somebody worthy of my giving. I'm giving because Jesus has entrusted me with resources and has called me to be generous with those things. Generosity is all about like giving more than would be like a normal or reasonable level. It's, and, and again, this is the gospel. Like, here's this thing we did not deserve at all. The death, resurrection, atoning sacrifice of Christ. And yet he has given it to us flagrantly and generously. In full knowledge that there's not going to be a great return on his investment. In fact, Jesus talks about this, and Jesus saw it even during his ministry. He says there are kind of two roads here. One's a narrow road. One's a wide road. Listen, most people are going to choose the wide road. But if you want to come after me, you're choosing a narrower, harder, smaller gate. He uses all of these analogies. Jesus knew that even though he was going to his death, that there would be many, many people who would say, eh, no thank you. That there would be many of his own people who would say, that wasn't the Messiah. 
And yet he went anyway. He's called us to do the same thing, not just with our money, but I would say with all of our resources. I think the New Testament teaches just this open-handed generosity as the paradigm for our lives. And then finally, open your home. I think this is what we're talking about here when we talk about hospitality. Several years ago, 10 years ago now, when we first moved to Shreveport, we were in a large church here in Shreveport that just a few years prior had built a multi-million dollar facility. And gosh, they had at least uh, 30 Sunday school rooms, like 30 Bible study rooms. And at some point in time, not long after they built this multi-million dollar facility with all of this space, the church actually pivoted, the church changed its ministry model, and they told their people, hey, listen, we don't want you to meet here at the church for Sunday school or small group anymore. We want you to open up your home and go to your home. And there were a lot of there was a lot of poor leadership there. There were a lot of political dynamics, and a lot of people were upset about that decision and the way it was communicated and all of that stuff. But I talked to people, and I came in years after the fact. I talked to people who just flat out told me, I don't want all those people coming to my house. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, like the people who are a part of your church family, I'm not interested in them being in my home but yet recognized that for the early church, they could not have survived if people had not opened their homes. They could not have survived if people hadn't sold things that they owned to provide for the needs of other people. And and here's what's interesting. Again, the, the, the New Testament concept of hospitality is the concept of love of stranger. So if we won't even open our homes for our church family, If we won't even invite people to sit around the table with us, and I don't mean having 300 people to your house, just invite someone over to dinner, right? Like share a meal with somebody and talk about life and talk about what Jesus is doing in your heart. Like if we won't even do that, then how in the world are we going to welcome strangers into our home? And we do that again because of the gospel, because while we were strangers to Christ, he welcomed us in. And invited us to his table. All right, let me be done. Let me pray for us this morning. Friends, there is so much here that we all struggle with, that I struggle with. And yet, let us not forget, Jesus says that literally all of the Old Testament scriptures, all the law and the prophets hinge on loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Let this be the focus of our hearts. Let this be the goal, let this be the goal of our time together, our interacting with each other, that we would seek to know his love and show his love, putting others ahead of ourselves. Let us pray. God, we love you and we give you thanks and praise and honor for the truth of your word today. We thank you for your goodness and mercy and for a chance to talk about your gospel and and what Jesus has done. And Father, I pray today that we would not just have heard some things but, but God, that you would communicate the truths of your scriptures into our heart through your spirit. That you would imprint them on us. That, God, you would actually call us and spur us to 
remind ourselves of these things each day. Guide us by your spirit so that we might grow up into Christ and surround us with an incredible, loving faith community that is seeking our good while we seek their good, that is blessing us while we seek to bless them. God, inspire us. Give us the kind of zeal that Paul's talking about that we might pursue this vehemently. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in your name. Amen.